Music to Code By is taking the developer world by storm. Now there are six extra tracks available online in addition to the original three. That's nine Pomodoros of pure productivity just waiting for you. Check them out at mtcb.pwop.com. Net Rocks, episode 1240, with guest Rachel Reese. Recorded Tuesday, December 15th, 2015. Hey, guess what? It's Net Rocks again. I'm Carl Franklin. And I'm Richard Campbell. And um, where are we right now? We're um, time-shifting home, wise. in theory. This is time shifting wise. This is one of the, f- the first week of January. So happy so, new year. Yeah. Welcome to 2016. I'm in Cancun with my wife. Well, I'm home. Probably at home. <laughs> yeah. I'm home trying to, trying to deal with my family. I suspect you are shoveling out your drive. Oh, uh, no. I'm watching the other one shovel it out. Actually. Oh, very nice. Okay. What else yeah. do you keep? What? I don't wake up early enough to get it shoveled out, even though we have a guy who comes with a plow. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife can't wait that long. <laughs> no, she, she has she to go out. She requires order. I know that much. She does. Yeah. <laughs> Even now she's got a Subaru and she, you know, can get out. No Could problem. Could just drive nope. over the snow anyway. Nope. Nope. <laughs> Going to have to get out there early in the morning and shovel it up. There will be order. All right. Well, New Year's aside, let's get started with Better Know a Framework. Awesome. <laughs> All right, buddy. Better know a friend. We were talking about this before in December. I've done over 1,200 of these things. Yeah, yeah. Is it that many? Or 1,000. Done over 1,000. Yeah, over 1,000. Over 1,000. Creeping up on 1,100. All right. Uh, Impress.js. Okay. Impress.js. It's a, a visualization library for JavaScript, sort of like PowerPoint on steroids, but in the browser with JavaScript with HTML and CSS. So uh, if you go to impressjs.pwop.me, that's my shortcut to it. Me. Yep, pwop.me. There you go. It's from first web designer, 1stwebdesigner.com. But uh, it, it's cool. We've uh, we've played around with it, and we like it. It's It seems very Prezi-like. Kind of Prezi, yeah. Yeah. Yep. But it's just it's just JavaScript. So if you've got JavaScript skills, you can do all kinds of things with this. Yep. And you basically just start with divs and hook them up to the library and add things to it. And that's pretty much it. Nice. I love it. That's cool. You can waste plenty of time with this one, let me tell you. This is, it's, you know, another way to, uh, you know, we're all sick of PowerPoint. Let's face it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> we're all sick of PowerPoint. Well, Microsoft's doing the Sway thing now, which I think is another copy of Prezi. But uh, this, you know, I got enough JavaScript skills that I can do what I want here. Yeah. And when are we going to get PowerPoint, you know, I don't know. I'm 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 not going to go there. <laughs> Richard, who's talking to us? Grab your comment off of show 1225, the one we did with Henrik Felt. We talked about building websites with F Sharp. 
sort of a steam thing here. And uh, Delmania said, this show was awesome. I've used F-sharp for some lightweight web development as well as some minor applications, but Henrik's comments and examples definitely make a case for using the stack for a more robust and scalable framework. I am currently in an organization where C-sharp and .NET are considered second-class citizens to Java, and that's version 6, no less. And Henrik's comment uh, are making me think of things to incorporate into .NET and F-sharp and into our open technology stack to help push the organization forward. So thank you. Yeah. Hey, we've changed some minds. We've had some influence. I love it. And uh, and actually, Henrik popped on and said, uh, that comment made my day. Thanks very much. And it made my day too, Delmania. So thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of the social media. We post every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there, we read it on the show. We'll send you a mug. And hey, we're going to be uh, in London next week and the week after that in Scotland. We're, yes. We're doing a little UK romp. Yeah, having some fun with it. An infestation. Little time in the south, little time in the north. And so uh, what that means is NDC London. That's ndc-london.com. And also our ScottNet Rocks tour, which you can probably still squeeze into if there's any room. Go to tinyurl.com slash scottnetrocks. And that's Scott with one T because, you know, it's about being Scottish. Right. Yeah. I hear they're, they're like whiskey tumblers that say ScottNet Rocks on them somewhere. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> we're doing three shows in Scotland. We're doing one in Glasgow. We're doing one in Edinburgh and one in Aberdeen. Right. And uh, the 18th through the 21st, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So if you can still make it, that will be a lot of fun to see you. For sure. Make sure you stop by and say hi. All right. Time for Rachel Reese. She's a longtime software engineer and a math geek who can often be found talking to random strangers about the joys of functional programming and F-sharp. She currently handles training and evangelism for Jet.com in the New York City area and has a habit of starting user groups so far in Hoboken, New Jersey, a plural site study group in Nashville, Tennessee, that's at Nash F-sharp, and Burlington, Vermont, at VT Fun. She's also an ASP insider an F-Sharp MVP, a Xamarin MVP, a community enthusiast, one of the founding at Lambda Ladies, and a Rachi. <laughs> one of the rare, very rare Rachi. Here's an inside joke there. We'll tell you about it. You can find her on Twitter at Rachel Reese or on her blog, rachelree.se. Isn't that cute? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Rachel. Welcome back. Thank you. I am so glad to be here today. Yeah, you told us about the actor model in at Ordev a few years yes. ago. That's a while ago. That's now. right. Yeah, that was a fun show. That was the first time I'd had it explained, like in real words. That was <laughs> nice. Yeah, good show. So, uh, bef- I don't want to leave this alone too. Um, training and evangelism for Jet dot com. That's that's a pretty cool title. It is a lot of fun. Um, I was just saying when I when I first started with Jet.com, they were, you know, this this little startup that I'd heard of because they were doubling down on F Sharp, and so the mm-hmm. whole F Sharp community kind of knew who they were, and you know, I had I heard some vague ideas that they were going to jump in and take on Amazon. I thought, okay, you know that that sounds ambitious. Let you know, it sounds crazy. Just, Let's be clear, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it'll probably end up being some little shopping site. And the amount of 
just everything that yeah. the, the, the amount of work that everyone has put in the amount of press that we've been getting the oh, amount yeah. of funding that we've been getting the it's it, it's really taking off like this is properly an amazon competitor and it, mm-hmm. it's it's amazing to be involved in an, in an f-sharp way <laughs> and just to be clear the if i'm not mistaken the whole mantra of jet.com or the idea anyway is that you take away sort of middlemen and storage and all of that kind of stuff and inventory and how what's the how do the, how do the prices stay so low what's the <laughs> what's the story there exactly um so there's the idea of a smart card basically we we work with the vendors a lot more than a lot of the other companies um than any other company that we know of but we allow them to set specific rules so that you know that the canonical example that everyone uses is if you're shopping for a baseball glove as well as a baseball bat and you know on on Amazon or any other retailer that might come in two totally separate packages that might be two different vendors that send it but with ours you can the way the vendors might set the rules you can end up getting them from the same vendor and faster because it'll come from the east coast um if, if you're on the east coast as i am as jet is you know they'll come together they'll come faster it'll be cheaper for the vendor to ship it mm. it'll be we can pass those savings on to you so the overall cost will be cheaper for us to give it to you and it won't like if you're if you're buying something on the east coast that comes from california mm. it's going to take you know yeah. 5 days yeah. plus you know the extra shipping and handling and and we can cut all of those things out as well as several different things on the back end. I mean, we have a very dynamic pricing engine. Mm. Um, there's actually a really cool blog post that we have on the, the jet.com blog, which is techgroup.jet.com, um, about how we handle some of the, the pricing strategies. That's very cool. So, yeah, I heard about it on NPR before I knew that you were working for them. And then when I <laughs> saw that, I was like, oh, very good, very good. <laughs> okay. Um, functional microservices. So microservices, obviously the big buzzword of 2014, probably 2015, huh. and certainly going forward. Um, and, and it kind of funny because if you've been paying attention to good architecture all along for the last 10, 15, 20 years, you've probably been, you know, breaking your things into discrete services, but, but, uh, now you're going all functional on us. <laughs> <laughs> It turns out it actually works out very easily. Some of the, um, I have a, a really fun talk just on, you know, the patterns and practices that have, have come out of JET. Um, we, as I mentioned, we sort of doubled down on functional programming mm-hmm. as well as microservices from the beginning. We have maybe 350 microservices now. Um, that number goes up every single time I ask. Uh it's a lot easier to write a microservice, uh, especially in a, a large distributed system, when things are very functional. If mm. if things are immutable, you know, quite obviously it's not going to change out from under you. You know exactly what you're getting. You know how things are going to work. Um, once you have the immutability, you have you, know, you can you can look at a microservice as just you know a, a transformation. You have the objects that are coming in, whatever types you have that that come in. You have a transformation. You have the information that's going out. And that those two things combined, I mean, if you're going to write them in a functional manner anyway, you might as well be writing them with a functional programming language. So I guess the then the antithesis of that is if you're not functional, you're going to have a harder time with microservices? I would say you are absolutely going to have a harder time with distributed systems, um, with anything 
distributed with anything, um, you know, concurrent programming, definitely. And microservices, I would agree with that as well. <laughs> it's just that the right way to build functional code happens to also be the right way to build services. Yes. Yes, very much. I would agree with that. Okay. So, I mean, we've talked about functional uh, programming plenty, and the big piece, of course, is this immutability. But what are the other aspects of functional programming that make great services? Um, the the ability to, com- to compose everything is is a huge one. And that was actually one of the main pieces that sort of drove JET to functional programming uh, to begin with. And I'll get back to microservices in a minute, because this is a, this is a really interesting story. Mm-hmm. But the... So the CTO attended a an F sharp conference in New York. Um, Skills Matter holds one ev- almost every year, and he attended it several years ago, and thought, yeah, there was still this buzz around how functional programming and F sharp specifically are really good for math and sciencey things and you know financial programming. Right. And he thought, well, if we're going to do this website, then we want to have a pricing engine, and that's that's a perfect fit. That'll that's exactly what F sharp was built for. Mm-hmm. And so. You know, they started on started building the pricing engine in F Sharp, and started seeing more and more usefulness to F Sharp. You know, all the little things, being able to have something like a discriminated union, and um, w- which is you know a, a union of types. You can have several different types in one. Um, the way I would I usually present them is um, they can sort of replace um, amongst other things. One of the things they can do is replace a simple object hierarchy. And C sharp. Um, so if you have three or four objects that would inherit from one, you can take that same setup and have you know three or four lines of code rather than these three or four different files in C sharp. Hmm. Um, but that being one thing, they they started seeing more and more utility and thought, well, then started having arguments. You know, do we want to write more pieces in F sharp? Do we want to continue this path of C sharp? And created two totally separate solutions. So they had hmm. a full F-sharp solution and a full C-sharp solution and developed them in parallel for at least a couple months. And one of the actual winning factors for F-sharp in general was the composability, was being able to, um, and, and specifically um, being able to compose, when you're, you're thinking about all those cross-cutting concerns, logging and, and all of those things. Right. Um, yeah, being able to, write just a few lines of code that will, you know, run this function, now pipe it into logging something, now, you know, run the next piece of of information. Having steps that were just very clearly laid out on a page like that were a huge, huge win. Well, you you had an amazing luxury then that you had this moment where you had two apps doing the same thing written two totally different ways. Mm Mm-hmm. We always dream of that, right? It's like, oh, if only I could rewrite this in, you know, that that kind of thing. Were there more lines of code the C-sharp side than the F-sharp side? Was it easier to test? Like, there must have been all kinds of things you could have derived from that. It was, um, the main one I know was the one I really have wanted to go back and, and talk to a few of the, the original key developers and say, you know, what else was it? exactly those questions? Uh, because yeah. it was, it's a really cool idea that they... They literally had, you know, these two things sitting right there. Mm-hmm. And this was the pricing engine. This, um, it started out with just the pricing engine, but it developed into the entire website. Our, the back end of Jet is probably ninety-five percent uh, F sharp. Wow. <laughs> there are a few pieces that we ended up never converting that were just easier to 
to leave or to to write in F in C sharp. But yeah, we have probably seventy developers right now in, in full time F sharp. And thinking back to uh, to twelve twenty five to Henrik Feld's show on the F sharp web stack, he was talking about Suave and Web Sharper. Like, are, are those tools you're using? No. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, it's, it's just cool to think there. Here's a website built in F sharp that didn't use these approaches. Yeah. I would love it if we were. Um, we're using a lot of Node and and JavaScript on the front end. Okay. <laughs> you talked about composability being one of the greatest strengths of the functional world. And by that, do you mean being able to start with um, small functions, put them together, link them together, and then finally say, yep, this is one complete service, and then break out the next function being a remote call, uh, et cetera, et cetera, just the sort of encapsulation? Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Um, that, as well as much more simply, is sort of the idea of pipelining. Um, you can, you know, sort of flow from one thing to the next in a very clear manner and and sort of yeah put things together like puzzle pieces you know this will hook into this and this will hook into this but these three things can also hook into these four other things over here in a nice manner and you know we have composability in an object oriented world i'm i'm just wondering does it does it seem to you now being functional for so long that object oriented composability and and compositing is uh just feels awkward it does feel awkward and it's uh, yes having been in the the f-sharp world for for so long it's almost anything object-oriented feels is much more confusing to me yeah um there's i believe it's scott flashin has a really great uh talk where he he has this slide where you know lots of scary functional terms are listed on it and and you know functional programming is really scary and then he lists all the the scary object oriented terms <laughs> much more <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and i think back to you know the 10 years that i spent with c sharp and i think that was really scary those those concepts are does it seem know, more I'm, ceremonial and unnecessary some of it very much to me um especially with things like um like entity framework where just to get to your data, you know, you have to install something and generate a whole structure mm -hmm. around these things and then tweak it and work with it. Mm -hmm. Whereas F -sharp has something like type providers, which is just a couple lines of code and you're talking right to your database. You have IntelliSense on your database or on a CSV file and it's, it's faster. Do you still get the flexibility of the entity framework being able to go inside and make changes and things like that? You can. I haven't personally, well, I haven't personally used it for anything other than a demo, but yeah. there is a type provider that works on top of Entity Framework. Yeah, when I think of F-sharp and functional languages, I certainly don't think of high level, you know? But that's sort of what you're describing with type providers is this sort of, like, you know, like the the first magic we had with XML web services where you just magically got this proxy and everything was there, you know? It was very high level, but of course, you know, you're, you're giving up some... some um, you know, the ability to tweak and the ability to change things easily and to get in there and make changes. But I, d I don't get that sense from you that that's where, um, where F-sharp brings you. That um, type providers is, was my first aha moment with F-sharp. Mm -hmm. So it is a, um, it is something I will often come back to. Mm. They, it, it, they are a little bit different, more difficult to tweak. They are a little slower when you compile. Um, 
I know that at, at Jet, we have a lot of flexibility amongst the teams to sort of use the appropriate technologies. And some teams swear by type providers and some teams absolutely refuse to use them hmm. entirely. Hmm. Um, so they're, they're a bit more of a mixed bag than I wanted to think when I first discovered them. <laughs> but do you get the sense that they're this sort of high level, they give you this sort of high level thing that you can't really change all that easily? Or do you need to, do you not need to change? Perhaps. I haven't, in what I have done, I haven't found many needs to change. Um, there was one case with, I believe, the XML type provider. Mm. Um, well, say no well, more. XML. Yeah. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're forgiven. <laughs> <laughs> oh, ain't nobody got time for XML. Good Lord. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how we got there. We did so much with XML for so long, but, you know... It became this tar baby. It became this thing. Every time you stuck your hand in it, it made it worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I really got to hand it to the to the larger community for just rejecting complexity and embracing simplicity wherever they can. And I think that's that's really our job to do that. And to, you know, even if it means bucking the trend. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Stackify. Our dev-centric friends at Stackify have been awarded PC Magazine's Editor's Choice for Application Performance Management, stating the depth of application information provided by Stackify totally outshined the other products in this category. Because Stackify so successfully integrates errors, logs, and metrics into a core APM Plus tool, it's a must-have for .NET developers, which is why PC Magazine's Paul Farrell calls it one of the best infrastructure management services of 2015. Try Stackify now for free, and they'll ship you their coveted Developers Against Humanity card game. Just activate your account. Use the link bit.ly slash netrocks to build better apps faster and get your free game. Backing into microservices here, I mean, a lot of way the way you're describing building functions just sounds the way people describe building microservices anyway. That they, you have these little units that have a specific task and you can clip them together, essentially. That is almost exactly the description of microservices. They just stick HTTP in front of it. That's exactly. And actually, um, since you guys had mentioned my last show was on the actor model, it's also very similar to the actor model. Sure. It's all of these you know, little pieces that can talk to each other and you know, not necessarily all through one major hub, not necessarily, but like sort of willy-nilly all over the place with you know much more structure than that um but it's exactly it's it is a very you know you, you take a very small piece and it there seems to be a lot of different definitions of of microservices and ours uh tends to you know we want to adhere the, to the the single responsibility principle so i know that's not necessarily what everyone does but for us you know it's it, it's one set of functionality it's one you know, exactly what you said, one little piece of information and or one little task. You know, you you send information in, you transform that, you figure out how to handle that in the um one of the things we do is we try to have very consistent code amongst all of our microservices. So we have, you know, a handle function. How do you handle the input? Um an interpret function. So once mm -hmm. we get once we've you know transformed the input into output, then what you know? How do we interpret that output? Do mm. we you know was it a complete failure or was it not? Mm -hmm. um, and so we, again, we have very you know clear lines of of what we're 
you know, how to write these things for basically most teams. Yeah. Well, and I just think that's, again, it's like you're falling into this pit of success, that these are the <laughs> tools. I mean, you can abuse F-sharp too. I'm sure you could build functional code that would make a mess of microservices just as well. Absolutely. <laughs> Is there such a thing as spaghetti F-sharp code? <laughs> I, <laughs> the, you know, there absolutely can be. I, I suppose. Mean, why not, right? Yeah, just because the language solves some of your problems doesn't mean you you can't <laughs> abuse the heck out yes. of it and do terrible things. <laughs> well, and I've seen that this I've seen a few blog posts and Rob Connery's on Elixir, not exactly the same thing, but the same sort of feel. It's like you say you come in with your C sharp chops starting to write functional code and you write very procedural functional code and then you rewrite it and you rewrite it and it gets shorter and clearer and simpler. It takes a while to learn this this flow. Very much. It takes a while to learn, you know, some of the more advanced features, you know, the, the things that people are scared of, um, mm -hmm. how to properly use them, how how and when. And um, a, a good friend of mine has uh, a, a team member that, that he's working with who, you know, a very junior developer, really, really wicked smart, is jumping on F-sharp, thinks it's, the, you know, the most wonderful thing ever, and runs down into these rabbit holes with every new thing that, that <laughs> <he> learns. <laughs> Isn't enthusiasm wonderful? Watch him go. <laughs> and it's great, but, you know, I mean, that can happen in F-sharp just as well as it can happen. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> For a holiday gift, I got you some coffee. Yes. <laughs> But, you know, I, I see these core patterns to functional programming, like the actor model and so forth, that I think you can teach fairly well. But the thing that's going to take time is the catalog of this is a good place for a discriminated union. Mm. You know, like that, that to me is a much more challenging. You think about your reflexes in object-oriented programming. There's a bunch of patterns that you utilize uh, as you solve different problems, and it takes time to stack up a similar set of skills for functional programming. It takes experience, time, like everything else good, yeah. One of the first problems I had with F-sharp actually was even, I mean, it, this was in 2010 or so, was even understanding how to put a solution together. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't know, like, you know, which files belonged where mm -hmm. or... Like, should I be using modules? Should I be using classes? What mm -hmm. should I be using namespaces? What what is this module thing even, and where does it fit into? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's I mean even at a larger level, you know, from where does the discriminated union fit into? How do I even architect this whole thing? Yeah, what's a compilable app look like? Yeah, do people write F sharp without Visual Studio? A lot of folks use Xamarin Studio these days, mm -hmm. but no, just like basic text editor kind of things. Oh yeah, there are a lot of them. Um, I'm, I I know some of them. I know Adam is a good one. Uh, I know there are plugins for Emacs. Do you know people that actually do that though? Or I, mean, I guess what I'm getting at is how much uh, help is Visual Studio in writing F sharp as opposed to C sharp? Just as much? About just as much. Oh, yeah. That's good. Um, basically, anything with a REPL is yeah. useful. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Sure. <laughs> but there is a, there is FSI, right? There's the whole F-Sharp Interactive. Not that I've ever used it, but it's just fascinating to me that someone would want to command line out some F-Sharp. <laughs> oh, it's, it's wonderful. Well, to be fair, I don't often command line out, but I will write a script file and step through that in the command line. So okay. it's sort of the same thing. Um, but that's, 
that's how I do a ton of my F sharp is actually exactly that. Is with the FSI. Mm-hmm, mm. mm-hmm. It's a lot faster. It's it's quicker to see what's going wrong um, rather than you know building and running an entire solution. Not that building and running an entire solution is necessarily mm. you know twenty minutes long, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's you know running that one little line of code, then you can change just one line, rerun you know one function or just one line of code, mm-hmm. and see an updated set of information, an updated result. Mm. Well, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Uh, must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to redefine the term discriminated union to be the set of those listeners who laugh at my mid-show jokes. <laughs> That's, you guys That's are, good. You guys are part of that union. Is that discriminated or discriminating? I don't know. Discriminated against, perhaps, <laughs> for laughing at in- inappropriate jokes. <laughs> Actually, it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, do you know Swift, Objective-C, and Java? Can you use them in tools like Xcode and Android Studio? If so, awesome. For everyone else, there's NativeScript, a cross-platform framework for building native iOS and Android apps using skills you already have, JavaScript or TypeScript, CSS, and a XAML-like XML markup. Start building your dream native mobile apps today using... Do do you guys dream of mobile apps? No? (laughs) Me neither. Well, if you have dream mobile apps, start building them today. You can use the NativeScript CLI for free or use NativeScript in Visual Studio with a Telerik platform subscription, which enables you to build iOS apps without the glowing Apple. Get started for free at Telerik.com slash NativeScript. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? You know, I bet Atlee Hunter dreams of mobile apps. He <laughs> dreams of something. I don't know. <laughs> well, today's winner, Richard, is Derek Smithson. Ah, congratulations, Derek. Golf clap for you, sir. <laughs> yeah. All right. And just for being a part of the fan club, Derek wins a Telerik DevCraft collection, a big pile of awesome from Telerik. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, oh, you missed it by a month, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And of course, now it's your turn, Rachel. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? I thought about this one quite a bit. I, well, first, I, I uh, wanted to find a way to make a Tesla only cost $5,000. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. <You get> <laughs> I was like, well, scale maybe I could buy like a door handle. <laughs> <laughs> Windshield wiper. Exactly. The, the gas cap. Well, still- <laughs> maybe you can get the charger for that, actually. <laughs> A Dodge Charger, um, right? <laughs> well, it's, it's, a, yeah, it's a place where you can look and say, if I had a Tesla, I'd plug it in there. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> but I decided on uh, starting to invest in home automation. Nice. Um, I love that. Yeah. I'm, I'm so intrigued by all of it. My husband won't let me go near it. Uh, he assumes it's all hackable and terrible things will ensue. But mm-hmm. All of these things are true. <laughs> they can Fair be. point. They, can you know, be they absolutely can be. Yeah, I don't argue with it, but I still think it's really awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Elizabeth Groom, our winner in 2015, that's what she asked for yep. was a, a sort of starter uh, smart home kit, a couple of tablets and some smart thing devices, like all the bits and pieces to get started with instrumenting the house better. Nice. 
Very nice. Yeah, it was very cool. Instrumenting the house. <laughs> well, and, and that problem is, and I think we talked about this in the smart home uh, geek out too, yeah. is that as developers, we simply think about these problems so differently from everybody else. Oh, yeah. You know, we're excited. We're just give me some instrumentation. I will write the if this then that code, mm-hmm. and my house will do stuff. <laughs> but is it sustainable for the mortals in your life? You know, like everybody else, can they deal with it? I, I don't know. I, that's always been the problem in my house. Is there's enough automation in here that, they, and it's interesting to see the stuff that the rest of the family will use, and the rest of the family, and the stuff that the rest of the family will say. I'll wait till you'll come home to figure that out. <laughs> I'd just be happy with kids that clean up after themselves. That's what I'd be happy with. I uh, see. Now there's some impossible. <laughs> How do we automate right that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it does involve children. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I get it. So we have some technology to get rid of the children, and then everything else will fall into place. There you go. Oh well. <laughs> so I'm looking at functional programming, the actor model. And microservices as like a, a dream relationship. They, these things seem to all go together pretty nicely. They really do. Um, I had been thinking that, you know, every time I started to hear people talk about microservices and, and why they were good and, and, and some of the benefits, I kept jumping back to what I knew about the actor model and thinking right. this sounds, mm-hmm. you know, like the same sort of concepts, you know, little tiny composable pieces mm-hmm. of, you know, that, code and and functionality and it was only very recently a couple months ago that i finally found a blog post or a video of somebody saying the same thing i was like okay so so other people have seen this (laughs) i'm not crazy (laughs) i'm not just making up random associations that you know are totally random yeah right it is a bit of a buzzword soup at that point yeah 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 very much um i my my latest talk is uh, is even worse. Patterns and practices for real world event driven microservices. Wow, it's- there you go. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. I ran across an article called "Reactive Cloud Actors" oh, and went, boy. "Okay." <laughs> but then, it, then, then, it, oh no! The subtitle was "No Nonsense Microservices." And oh I'm like, my! Well, are you are you sure? So much for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to do a bit of refactoring before I can take out all the nonsense. Um, aren't we just talking about good design? I mean, if we have, if we had the cloud 20 years ago, wouldn't we be doing that this then? I mean, it's just, it makes sense to me to decompose everything and, 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 and communicate. Uh, it just seems the way that distributed systems should work. Yes. What's new? <laughs> like what what happened when people suddenly said, "Oh, you know, microservices," and then everybody got it suddenly? Or did they? Is it just confusing? I think people are starting to So, one of the the biggest I suppose problems with microservices is that it's uh the architecture in general requires a whole lot of infrastructure to run. Right. There's, you know, you have to Import a, a monstrous DevOps team that that can handle, you know, pushing out these new instances, stopping and starting, all of these different places, and handling all of these all of these things. But that's why it's very popular with cloud computing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think, I think that's the thing holding people back from sort of you know jumping in and even possibly from getting it. I think that the concepts are really easy to understand. Exactly what you said. Break everything down in little tiny composable chunks, and and work with it, have them talk to each other. 
that that seems really clear. But once you you're sort of just moving the the messiness of you know, from the code mm-hmm. onto, you know, DevOps. Ah, well, and, and when you say DevOps, what I'm really thinking of is one of the reasons we we stuck to monolithic apps for so long is because deployment was so painful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the the fact that we've gotten to a place now where we're not afraid to deploy, where interoperability isn't voodoo, you know, that we can actually speak to each other. We all trust HTTPS. And, and we have uh, authorization, authentication, authorization mechanisms that we can trust that aren't super costly resource wise. So we can afford to authenticate routinely rather than keep everything in a big chunk. So you only have to authenticate once like this. It's, it is sort of time. Like your call out, Carl, like what about what happened 20 years ago? Well, 20 years ago, we we're still arguing whether HTTP was a good idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, they, they, those kinds of things. Solving this deployment problem, being able to instrument in production so you know what the hell's going on when stuff goes wrong. Like that just wasn't feasible only a few years ago. Right. Yeah. I just, I just wonder if we had, you know, uh, you're right, Richard, of course, that especially for us Windows people, right? Deployment was nothing. It was so hard. <laughs> it's so, it so hard. I'm thinking back <laughs> to CDs. You remember we used to deploy on CD. Yeah. You know, and floppies before that and uh how just how terrible it was. Even a few years ago, it was, you know, a team of 25 people, I mean, and some folks are still like this, but a team of 25 people on a phone call to copy some files. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Or uh, the other aspect that I think makes a lot of sense now when we look at microservices and in this approach is testing. Yes. You know, we didn't used to do unit level testing or component level testing. Like we didn't think that way. It makes perfect sense now. And part of that is, A, I think culturally we've just gotten to this place where we're not afraid to write code to test our code, that we, you know, dig uh, in, in inversion principles and, and things like that, that that we're not afraid to to work with these things in individual pieces where those pieces are actually now an asset, where they didn't used to be an asset. They used to be a, a complication. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's it really does feel like it's time that we finally got in all the places. You know, I was digging deeply into the actor model. The earliest paper I found, 1973. And this was a guy who was talking about building artificial intelligence systems using something he called actors. And it's basically the same pattern. Mm. It's just think about how you would have written code in 1973. Little, you know, Z80 assembler for anybody. Let's build actors that way. Well, I, I've said it before. I like to think of the Windows message pump. You know, if, for anybody who's done Win32 programming in Windows, it's all actor actors. You know, every window is an actor, and then the mm-hmm. the fun the operating system sends messages when it detects that a mouse is over you or whatever. And and you know, all of those all all, all Windows is 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 actor model, but. But so you don't really need to go any further than your own desktop to sort of see it in action. But, uh, uh, you know, trying to, trying to lay that, um, architecture over a conceptual model of a business system can sometimes be daunting. So where, besides the, um, you know, the pricing and all the financial stuff in, let's say, jet.com, do, do actors come into play? Um, our entire backend um, is microservices. Um, so it's not just the pricing engine. It's, um, you know, when, when people sign up to the website, it's mm. uh, showing products, it's in the shopping cart. 
It's handling stocking the warehouse. Um, so I won't say literally everywhere, but. <laughs> yeah, okay. So each of these microservices is an actor. Within a microservice, might you also have, you know, spin up other actors? Or are you pretty much on a one-to-one? -one? Uh, it's really more of a one-to-one. -one. Uh, well, yeah, you're not going to spin up no, a new microservice. No. Another, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So a microservice is an actor. Yeah. It's, I guess, looking at the Erlang model, it would not be a supervisor. It would just yeah. be a regular actor. Okay. I'm not sure what they call the. <laughs> and just for, you know, for our sake, what's the difference? What's a supervisor? Ah, a supervisor, uh, a supervisor can manage the other actors. Uh, it. So it's, if one of them fails for some reason, the supervisor will know and either you'll send a message back and back to the supervisor or, it, you know, the supervisor can restart that. Mm -hmm. uh, Erlang gets weird and we'll call them parents and children. So you can talk about killing children. And sure. <laughs> 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 but it, this is one of the fundamental things we've talked about over and over again with the actor models, this idea of, you know, you don't really try and recover within a given instance here. You just admit that you failed and move on. Basically. And you can you can try to restart. You can attempt to recover if you know how to, but you don't necessarily need to exactly just admit, you know, this this happened and move on. Mm, right. Well, it's just this nothing's long lived, right? Yeah, that's another element of it. We're just not afraid to light up some code, run something, have it fail, kill it, and then try another way. Yeah. And that's that is one of the the real key features of microservices is because everything is so small and so easy to, you know, spin up. You could um, I've heard a lot of people say it shouldn't be, you know, it shouldn't take you more than a few hours to rewrite the entire thing. Right. And that's basically true ish, but it should in general be very small and it should be, you know, four or five five functions that you're looking at to, you know, within this piece. And it should be easy to to comprehend, to rerun, to to completely throw away and do over. And I've always been an advocate on the SOA side, you know, spent 10 years uh, spouting that for that, that we really wanted each service to be built by an individual developer. That the only way you built really coherent code was that a developer or a pair, you know, however you did your code review to make sure another set of eyes went on it. But it was one set of thoughts. Uh, it's just that sometimes those services got massive, and this is really a, a cultural mindset of keep them really small so that one person can code them and could recode them, or mm -hmm. they could be written twice. And that brings me to my next question or, you know, confirmation by you that you must have tons of these things at, you know, a company like Jet.com. How do you manage them all? <laughs> Very carefully. Um, nice. <laughs> we have a lot of infrastructure around it. Um, we use uh, Kafka and Event Store to to sort of um, write to and, and read from both of them. And speaking of failure, one of the, the things I wanted to talk about, we actually have somewhat recently implemented a chaos testing program. Nice. And we have... <laughs> <laughs> so like awesome. chaos monkey. <laughs> uh -huh. Our devs have, you know, in the, the run-up to, you know, what we called Purple Friday. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, we, you know, for a couple of weeks before, we would just randomly turn off, you know, one or two instances in QA, but, and during business hours to let the developers see what happened when, you know, what is knowing that we will fail, knowing that this could happen in production. We want to make sure that 
we can recover quickly. We can, we know exactly what this is going to affect and make sure it affects only what we think it's going to affect mm. and not some other entirely unrelated service that should have nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now you weren't actually running, I mean, Chaos Monkey is actual software on GitHub. You, mm. you were just doing Chaos lo- Monkey like behavior. Yes, yes. We did not actually run Chaos Monkey. We, we built our own. Um, there okay. were a few, uh, because we're all, we're running all on Azure. And yeah, Chaos Monkey is very AWS centric. Mm-hmm. Um, we're an Amazon competitor. We, we can't use AWS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess not. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> um, it, but Azure even has one, I think it's called Waz Monkey. And that, that would bring down, you know, an, an entire section rather than just a single instance of the service. And we didn't want to, you know, we didn't want to completely break everything. We just wanted to bring down one instance and see what happened so far. I think eventually we'll move up to that point, but not, not moving up into to Purple Friday. <laughs> so, Rachel, what's next for you? What's on your plate? What's in your inbox? <laughs> I have a whole bunch of things coming up. Um, I have, I'm definitely going to be in NDC London. Yep. I have a, um, a couple talks on microservices there. I have, I'm developing a very cool talk that I'm really excited about, about our chaos testing uh, for QCon London. Mm-hmm. I believe that's March. And there is also a blog post that came out a couple weeks ago um, on, on chaos testing, which is on Jet's blog mm-hmm. at techgroup.jet.com. I am also creating, I, so if you're in the New York City area, there is a plural site group that I run at Jet okay. that I would absolutely love for folks to join. Right. Um, we tend to focus on F-sharp topics because, yeah. because Jet. Uh, sure. But we're new, and I would love to see folks there where that's out on Meetup. All right. Very good. And uh, you said that Jet's hiring? Jet is absolutely hiring. If you would like to move to New York City, please, please contact me. Um, either me, Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L, at jet.com, or Amy is our recruiter, A-M-A-I-M-E-E, at jet.com. I will probably just pass you straight on to her anyway. So feel free to contact either one of us. Great. We'd love folks that are interested in functional programming and microservices. That's awesome. All right, Rachel, we'll see you in London. Awesome. And thanks for spending time with us. Thank you, guys. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got